Bible in this series, and we've been looking at who is the Holy Spirit. We try to answer that question each week that we've studied this, and as we studied the Holy Spirit and His filling and His control of believers, it's obvious to us that there are certain things that will be manifested in a believer's life if they are submitting to the control, yielding to the control of the Spirit in their lives. And obviously, those things are cataloged for us in the fruit of the Spirit in the Scriptures. And so, we are taking a week to look at each part of the fruit of the Spirit in answering this question, who is the Holy Spirit? What does He mean to us? What is that relationship that we have with Him? And so today our theme is that those who are controlled by the Spirit will manifest long-suffering. So that's where we are in the fruit of the Spirit and in looking at this particular part of our series. But it has been said that long-suffering means suffering long. That is a good answer, but a better definition is needed. The word long-suffering in the Bible is made up of two Greek words, meaning long and temper, literally long-tempered. To be long-suffering, then, is to have self-restraint when one is stirred to anger. A long-suffering person does not immediately retaliate or punish. Rather, he has a long fuse and patiently forbears. Long-suffering is associated with mercy, as you see in 1 Peter 3, and hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It does not surrender to circumstances or succumb to trial. The believer in Jesus Christ receives the very life of God, his divine nature. That life produces certain characteristics or fruit that are displayed in the believer as he obeys the Holy Spirit who lives within him. One of those godly characteristics from Galatians 5 is long-suffering. The word is translated patience in the New American Standard Bible. Long-suffering is to be exhibited by all believers. Think how our lives would be affected if long-suffering were exhibited in individual relationships, family relationships, church relationships, and workplace relationships. The old nature can be very short-fused at times. How many of us have experienced that? Anybody? Okay. I'll take the chuckles as a raised hand, okay? So we tend to strike back against offenses with unkind words and unforgiving spirits. By obeying the Holy Spirit, the believer in Christ can say no to retaliation and exhibit a forgiving and long-suffering attitude. As God is long-suffering with us, we can and must be long-suffering with others. And we're going to look at this passage. I'm going to have you turn there to Ephesians 4 in just a moment. So retaliation is the opposite of long-suffering. And today's focus is going to study on what the Bible has to say about retaliation and revenge and where we need to be in overcoming, taking revenge against those who provoke us with their words, with their actions, and, and so forth. So we're going to study the antithesis of long-suffering so that we understand why it's important and how we can exercise it even while being provoked. So what does this all involve? Well, overcoming revenge, refusing that impulse, which is the most natural thing, if we were all honest, that, 
that has to be what those first thoughts are that go through our hearts and minds and lead to words and actions if we're not careful. So we have to deal with that impulse, and we need to have this, this we need to see the command that, that is uh, involved in, in, in all of this, that God is very clear, and so we must be obedient to this particular command. And what is that command that I am talking about? Well, we find it there in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. God is just very clear, isn't he? He says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. So we have this command. We have a command that we have to obey. It's very clearly an imperative statement. So it obviously is something that I have a part in. And that's, that's been the cool part of our study where we talk about the fruit of the Spirit is a work of the Spirit in us that we don't accomplish that work and that we can't bring it about. It's truly supernatural. But at the same time, we do have something to do with it, don't we? We play a part. We can be a believer who, who succumbs to the temptation to seek retaliation and seek revenge. It happens all the time. We can give in to that. So we truly have something to do with this. We, we've talked about this all along in this series on the fruit of the Spirit and how the Spirit manifests these things in us, those who are controlled by the Spirit. We have something to do with this. We may not accomplish the work, but we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in order to manifest these things that, quite frankly, are counter to our old nature, aren't they? Especially this one. But we have this command that we have to wrestle with and obey. I want us to turn over, if you have a copy of the scriptures or have it in some other form this morning, to this all-important passage in Ephesians 4. Because you might be saying, how in the world do I get to the point where I can obey this command? It runs counter to everything I think and everything I feel and everything that I want to do when someone does something evil against me or wrong against me. I want to seek retaliation. I want to even the score. I want to get my pound of flesh. How do I stay away from that dangerous thought and dangerous activity? I think the answer is found in one word. Now, I'm not suggesting by saying that that it's easy because this is complex. This is complicated. This is difficult. But there is one word that we can embrace. What is it? Forgive. That's the choice that we have in the moment, isn't it? I can forgive this. I can let go of this. Even if that individual isn't deserving of my forgiveness, they may not even recognize my forgiveness. But I still need to forgive them. I still need to get my mind and heart to a place where it doesn't constantly dwell on a desire to seek revenge. Because even if I never speak a word of revenge or do an action of revenge, if those things are in my heart, what does the Bible teach us about this? We're still guilty of it if it rests and resides in our heart. It's just like the principle concerning adultery that Jesus taught about, right? He said, it's not just the act of adultery that's adultery, but if you look on a woman and lust after her in your heart, what does Jesus say? You've committed adultery. So what rests and resides in our heart is critical and important. How do we get our hearts right and how do we guard them in this regard? It truly is forgiveness. 
Now we come to Ephesians 4. You know this passage. I just want to pick up the reading for context's sake in verse 29. All of these commands here have to do with our relationships and all of these things are going to help us in our battle that we're talking about this morning. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Instead of those things, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. There it is, forgive. You want to guard your heart from the anger and bitterness that will lead you down a path to seeking and contemplating and actually executing revenge and retaliation? Learn to forgive. You know, Jesus forgave, didn't he? In fact, this passage reminds us of that, doesn't it? We, we need to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave us. Every one of those offenses that we struggle with that happen in our lifetime to us, that cause us to desire revenge, are offenses for which Jesus died. And the offender who, who comes against you and does these things or says these things is one for whom Jesus died. And in many cases, sadly, in the church, they are believers, right? They're believers. So Jesus has forgiven them. Jesus loved them so much that he died for that very sin that they've committed against you. And in the moment, we are called to exercise that kind of gracious forgiveness. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Did we deserve that forgiveness? None of us would claim that we did this morning. Absolutely not. Was there anything that we could do to deserve the forgiveness? No, no. We were morally bankrupt creatures and God saved us because of Jesus and he forgave us because of the price that Jesus paid and because of the fact that Jesus satisfied God's unmitigated wrath against our sin. And indeed, that should stir us to forgive and motivate us to forgive as we are harmed and wronged by others. Didn't Peter learn this lesson? You think about that conversation that he had with Jesus. He says to Jesus, he says, look, and I think Peter probably thought he had the right answer, you know. Seven times? Am I supposed to forgive seven times, Lord? And what did Jesus say to him? No, Peter, 70 times seven. Now, how many of us have our list of when we get to 490, it's all over, right? How many of us are there? It's like, okay, I don't know if I could do this, but I, and that isn't the point of the story, is it? That's not the point of that narrative. The point of the narrative is you just keep forgiving. Because hopefully by 490, you've lost count anyway, and you have to start over, Right? The whole point is you keep forgiving and keep forgiving and keep forgiving and keep forgiving, just like God forgives us because of and through and in Jesus. That's the model that's laid down in Ephesians 4. That's the way this is supposed to look in our lives and in our relationships. And even the very definition of what true love is says that true love doesn't keep record of wrongs. 
You just forgive. It's not all about seven times, Peter. That's, that's a violation of what true love is. It's 70 times seven. It's just to keep going and going and going and going. How many of us like that? How many of us find that easy? It's just hard, dirty work, isn't it? But we need to do that work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. You know, this kind of forgiveness should be bathed in prayer. We ought to pray about our own forgiveness of other people because when God commands us to do something, he enables and empowers us to do it. And the only way to access that strength and really get this through to a point where we can glorify God, I believe, is that it ought to be a part of our prayer life. We ought to pray for ourselves and pray for the very grace of God that we need in the moment and beyond the moment to continually, consistently forgive. Have we prayed that way? Do we pray that way? That God would infuse his grace and give us what we need when we need it to forgive. Maybe we know right now something has happened and there's somebody, somebody, maybe in our faith community, that we just choose not to forgive. We have anger this morning. They have really ticked us off. And we just can't let go. We're holding on to it. We're getting angry ourselves. We're flirting with or maybe already succumbed to bitterness. Maybe we've thought about in our minds what we could do to get back at them. And maybe we've even started to do some of those things. Pray for yourself. Pray for your own heart. Bathe this matter that needs to be forgiven in prayer and see what God will do. You know forgiveness is liberating for both parties. You get that? Forgiveness is not just for the person who's offended you. It's just as much for you as it is for them. If, if you had a huge debt, we're, we're celebrating on the 25th this enormous debt that we took on to, to build our expansion. This room is one of those pieces, but so many other nice things that we enjoy in this campus because there were people who took on that mortgage and, and by faith trusted God, and now look, we're done with that. We're finished with that. Does anybody in the house this morning feel relieved because of that? Nancy, I thought you'd raise both hands, okay? So, <laughs> but anyway, there's relief, right? There's relief. I bet all the deacons raise their hands. And maybe all the deacons who ever served, right, raise their hands. That is the same way as when you forgive someone. They get relief from it. That, that debt that they owed is canceled. It's gone. You forgive them and you release them from that and you enable them to, to just have some liberation and some freedom. But what about you? You know, here's the trick that happens in our minds. We actually get deceived to the point where we think that revenge is fun and enjoyable. It is to our flesh, but I'm telling you this, there is nothing more enjoyable and satisfying to the believer who understands God's love through Jesus, equaling our forgiveness. There's, there's no greater liberation than to take that same love and that same grace and pour it on someone else and in someone else. That is liberating. That is satisfaction in Jesus for you who decide to forgive. Just like the debt being canceled for the offender is liberating, it's liberating for you and for me to forgive. If you would be honest this morning, you are most miserable when you hold on to offenses. 
We are. We don't like to admit that because we think there's some satisfaction in getting revenge, but there really isn't. There really isn't because you know what happens with that? It's never enough. It's never enough. The reason I know that is this. Anything that we put in place of Jesus for satisfaction in our hearts is always never enough. And it actually becomes an idol to us. And it sets us into an insatiable process where we are willing to go places we never thought we would go in search for satisfaction. As I'm telling you, if you seek revenge, you won't be satisfied with that. It will take you to something else and you'll do that. And this insatiable cycle that you get caught in until you break that cycle and find satisfaction in Jesus and obeying him and doing things his way, you will never be satisfied. Don't fall for the trick. That's the trick that's involved here that happens to us. Be reminded of this too, that forgiveness is not condoning the wrong that was done. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with you saying, oh, I, I have to agree with this person that they, they've sinned against me so I condone their wrongdoing by forgiving them. That's not what forgiveness is. But yet that misinformation and misleading and deception is what often keeps people from forgiving. They feel like, oh, if I forgive, that means I agree with this sin. No, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, just look at the model that we're called to emulate that we find in God through Jesus. Because he forgave us of our sin, does that mean he approved of our moral bankruptcy? Absolutely not. But yet he still forgave us. Forgiving does not equal condoning. Don't fall for that trick. So we have this command to obey. Secondly, we've touched on this briefly. We have a resistance then involved in this against the most natural response. The most natural response is even the score. Retaliate. Get even. Proverbs 24, 29 says, don't say, don't do this. I'll do to him what he did to me. I'll repay the man for what he has done. Why is that in the Bible? Because God knows how we tick. He knows what fallen human beings full of depravity are all about. And he knows this is the most natural desire when we are caught in a situation where someone has sinned against us. We want to even the score. Let's apply this to every area of life. And, and let me encourage you to, those of you who have children and grandchildren and maybe even others who are in your realm of influence, doesn't matter if you have children or grandchildren, but anybody in your realm of influence, would you take this seriously? especially with young people that, that might be in your realm of influence, great-grandchildren even, or just anyone. Maybe you teach a class here. Maybe you see this attitude and these actions in there. Get them off that track as quickly as you can. Help them break the cycle of the most natural response. I'll share a personal story, a very personal story, where I, I had a decision to make in a moment, and, and I made that decision. I want to share that with you because... It, it, it's one of those things where I want you to see how this bleeds over into life and how we need to make this applicable no matter where we are, that, that no context, no context should give us the right to seek revenge. And uh, as many of you know, our son, Stephen, plays basketball. And a couple summers ago, he was involved in, in playing basketball through the summer. And things got a little out of hand in, in one of the contests and it, it's that kind of thing where there's so much competition 
and if something happens on the court um, that's derogatory towards your team, it's like the whole team's responsibility to do it back, right? You've seen this in sports. You have seen this in sports. And I, I saw this in, in, in a contest, and I saw uh, people getting involved in this and returning evil for evil on the basketball court. I won't go into all the details. But my heart was smitten. I, I thought, that's wrong. I know we're in an athletic contest, but I don't want my son growing up to think that's right because I don't want him to bring that into life beyond basketball. So I, I'll never forget, I, I, I went after the game, I pulled Steven aside, I pulled the coach aside. And I thought, you know, anytime you ever talk to a coach, right, you're like, you're like in a forbidden zone, right? There's something about that. You're not allowed to talk to coaches, I guess. But anyway, I pulled him aside and I said, hey man, I said, I'm gonna make a statement. And here's the statement. I don't wanna see what I saw today ever again. And I looked right at the coach and I said, it's your responsibility to reel this team in because what is happening is wrong and it's dangerous. That's is where fights happen, okay? Fights erupt from these kinds of things. And I said, if this kind of behavior is tolerated and continues on, my son has played his last basketball game for you and this team. We're done because this is not the way we're going to do life. And we don't compartmentalize our life. So that on the basketball court, it's okay, but in real life, it's not because it's all real life before God. Boy, it got real quiet, as you can imagine. And it was interesting to see what happened. Needless to say, Stephen continued playing and changes were made. Now, not suggesting you have to do what I did, okay? I'm just saying that you serve yourself well and you serve others in your life well when you consistently apply Scripture to every compartment. Don't declare a particular compartment off limits to applying biblical principle. Compartmentalization is one of the most dangerous things that we can do as believers. Now, lest you think that I'm perfect in this, okay, I struggle with it just like you do. And there have been times in athletic contests where I have probably enjoyed revenge, okay, so the work of God's Spirit and the work of that in growing me and growing our family is the same work that can happen in you. Just don't fall for the danger of compartmentalization. Apply it across the board. Somebody put it this way, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves, <laughs> yours and theirs, because it has such a corrupting, killing effect on those who engage in it. And someone else put it this way, an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. Don't do it, even if it's the most natural response. Okay, number three this morning, we have to have a trust that God knows what is best, right? Isn't that what we're really looking here? It says, friends, you don't avenge yourself. There's our imperative statement. You, you resist the urge to do the most natural thing in life. Instead, in place of that, trust God. Leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's wrath. Trust that he knows best. And also trust that he doesn't need you to carry it out. Because he's going to do it himself. Don't forget this. In this, as you trust God and try to build this kind of trust in God... To, to revenge you, that you don't do it yourself. 
don't forget that God is all-knowing and he can't mess it up. Just settle that about everything in life, but especially about this. He is omniscient. We've studied that already on who is God. We, we began our study in theology through these series on, on major uh, doctrinal truths in the Bible. Who is God? God is omniscient. He knows everything. He can't mess this up. Just trust that. Trust him with the situation. Let him seek your vengeance. Secondly, God loves you more than anyone, and he's not going to forsake you. You feel the hate, you feel the revenge, you feel all the negativity of this stuff that's coming against you. God loves you more than anyone, and he's not going to forsake you in this. Trust him. And don't forget this, God is perfect. God is perfect. He won't overreact, and he certainly is not going to underreact, if you will, because he's perfect. He knows exactly what should be done for your vengeance against those who have sinned against you. Trust him. And when you're tempted not to, remind yourself that God has never done anything, nor will he do anything, because he is incapable of doing anything that will ever give you reason not to trust him. That's who God is. Trust that God. The next thing I want you to see this morning is we need a patience to wait on God. Why? Because we want revenge and we want it now, right? We, we can't stand it if someone has one up on us. It just runs against our human nature. We, the very last thing in the world that we're thinking about is patience. But you know, you have to wait on God for these things. Proverbs 20, 22. Don't say, I will avenge this evil. Wait on the Lord and he will rescue you. How easy is that? Wait. Stop. Don't move forward with that thought. Don't seek that revenge. Have patience. Wait on God. The truth of the matter is God's timetable is usually different from ours, isn't it? I mean, I, I just had someone say this to me not too long ago. He says, I'm glad I'm not God, <laughs> right? He <laughs> would just zap people, right? We want that zap right away to happen to our enemies, but God's timetable is different from ours. Don't forget this. God's waiting doesn't mean that he forgot about it. God doesn't forget anything. He, he's all-knowing. He, he chooses to forget our sin, but, but in this case, when he promises vengeance that he's going to seek that for you and he will execute that for you according to his perfect will... His waiting does not mean that he forgot, nor does his waiting mean that he doesn't care. Well, God, you don't care about me, so I have to do it on my own. Don't fall for that trick either. Consider this, that God's waiting may be his way of giving the offender time for repentance themselves and restoration if they've sinned, truly sinned. God's waiting might indeed be their time for repentance. Aren't you glad God gives you that time in your own life? And don't forget this, that God's waiting may mean that eternity holds their vengeance. The truth of the matter is those who sin against us, even in the faith community, we don't know. They may not really know Jesus. Their sins may not be forgiven. They, they may be attending a particular church, but that doesn't mean they know Jesus. 
And maybe God is going to give them a very long time for their repentance. And if they don't repent, we know eternity holds their vengeance. They will be forever separated from God in a place called hell, a place of torment. And we don't wish that on anyone, but God's waiting may mean that an individual doesn't know him and he wants them to turn to him. We do not know these things, but all of these things mean that we should have patience to wait on God. Don't say, I will avenge this evil. Wait on the Lord and he will rescue you. Number five, and next to last, this involves a discipline. It's not just keeping away from seeking revenge. There's something else here too, isn't there, in the teaching from Scripture. A discipline that involves returning good for evil. It's not just a refusal to return evil for evil, but it is a commitment to and a discipline to do something good to those who have done evil to you. Proverbs 25 says this, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. And then what about the teaching in 1 Peter 3? Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another and be compassionate and humble not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. So keeping from revenge is only half of the equation. If I understand Scripture correctly in these passages, I need to discipline myself to actually return good in an active way, good for the evil that has been done to me. How can you do that? Well, this might look different in each of the contexts in which you suffer wrong from somebody. But we must think about this. How can I do good to them? How is it that I can return good for this evil? To return evil for good is devilish. To return evil for evil is human, but to return good for evil is divine. The final thing I want to say as we close, number six is this, if we're going to keep away from revenge and, and do this properly, there has to be an acceptance of whatever God chooses to do. Are you there? Are you living there? Place it squarely in God's and you and I can't do that if we don't trust him. If we don't trust him, we'll never do this. Accept it. Accept whatever it is he decides to do. Accept whatever his vengeance looks like. And don't fall for the trap that you have to add to it to make it all right. Just trust God. Remember, it's liberating. It's liberating for the person that you forgive. And it's liberating for you as well. Don't torture yourself. Don't create your own misery by failing to obey this command not to seek revenge. Instead, have a long fuse. Be long-suffering and do it well for God's glory.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. Help us to understand what you are saying to us today, first of all, and then help us to make application of it. Point out to us and show us clearly where we have fallen short to live up to this standard of long-suffering, to allow the Spirit to control us in this way. And Father, if there are things that we need to make right today, may we do that for the good of those around us and for your glory. May you be glorified now, even as we responsively worship together. In Jesus' name.